I think that one of the hardest things was my brain was saying, this is going to be really, really bad and you have to make dramatic changes here. And that means that a lot of people are going to be impacted. My other side of my brain was like all these people that, that have helped and tried and given their best. But we made a very aggressive decision to make so many roles, hundreds of roles, 500 roles redundant. Hello and welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. And the voice you just heard was Nick Stone, founder of Bluestone Lane. Bluestone Lane is a cafe chain in North America with over 50 locations, serving Antipodean brunches and specialty coffee. Nick and I had a conversation back in July, a few months into the COVID shutdowns and during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. And in my opinion, this interview was exceptional. Nick is a leading light in the hospitality sector, and this interview gave me insight into how an impressive leader like Nick was coping in the face of COVID, the worst crisis that the hospitality sector has seen in generations. Some parts of this interview made it into our first episode of Fifth Wave about the long-term impact of COVID on the cafe sector. But there was so much more left on the cutting room floor that was bursting with insights on how we could all be better people managers and better decision makers. So in between our fortnightly episodes, we're going to be releasing full interviews with some of our guests where we believe it's worth it. So grab yourself a coffee, sit back, and enjoy this full conversation with Nick Stone. Delighted to welcome Nick Stone, who's the CEO and founder of Bluestone Lane. Really an amazing um, and very impressive brand out of North America here to the podcast series for Fifth Wave. So welcome, Nick. Thanks, Jeffrey. A pleasure to be here. I mean, before we get into the topic, which is mainly you know, the impact of COVID-19 on the business landscape for coffee operators... I think it'd be really interesting to get a bit of background about Bluestone Lane and also a little bit of background on yourself as well. Sure. So I'm originally from Melbourne in Australia and I landed in the States in New York City in late 2010 to actually go to business school. I was studying uh, as part of my MBA in the States and I was able to be transferred with my job in banking and finance. And while I was studying, it was apparent to me how different the coffee culture was in the US versus Australia, which is a land of independence. There's very few chains that dominate there. It's very much uh, an independent premium model with a huge focus, not only on quality coffee, but the total cafe experience, which is high quality, fresh, healthy food, personalized service, curated atmosphere and aesthetic. And then, you know, just this intangible which we describe as being a local, not a customer, where you walk in and there's a reciprocal relationship between the proprietor and the customer that you know each other's names. And when you're a local, the owner knows your name, face and order, and it makes you feel special and recognized and and safe. So I started uh, kicking around some ideas about developing, uh, you know, one or two Australian style coffee shops and cafes. I could clearly see that this younger customer was interested in more premium artisan quality products and there'd been some investment made in a few of the forefathers of premium coffee in the states and you know eventually finally in 2013 we opened our first store in a subterranean basement midtown manhattan we opened 12 over the the preceding three years and then i jumped full-time so left banking and since then we we opened another 40 so we currently have 51 
coffee shops and cafes. We, we have two concepts. Coffee shops very much focused on central business districts, smaller footprint, orientated around coffee. And then we have cafes, which operate more like restaurants, more focused on human connection and service. And we're in eight markets. And uh, this is my first ever hospitality experience. I never spent a day in hospitality. By way of background, I mentioned that I was in investment banking for 11 years. But prior to that, I was actually a sportsman. I, I played Australian rules football for six years. I got drafted professionally when I was in year 12, my final year of high school back in 1999, which is many, many moons ago. And you know, I've been full-time at Bluestone since mid-2016. So I've had three careers already, all completely different, but they have the commonality around being a part of high-performance teams. I love being part of teams. I love working with people. I love challenges and trying to innovate and the curiosity that goes with with either working with clients and providing advice and trying to resolve some of their problems. And now in the case of Bluestone Lane, working on how we can grow and build our brand. And right now, you know, how do we navigate this pandemic, which really is an existential crisis for smaller, medium-sized businesses. And unfortunately, it's, it's continuing to accelerate in the US. You know, I'm, I'm assuming you've, you've had to make some pretty tough decisions to keep the, the show on the road. Yeah, I'd be interested to know what's the magnitude of impact on the business and what have you had to deal with? Well, Bluestone Lane is the largest premium coffee brand influenced by the Australian coffee culture. So we would be the, the largest coffee export out of Australia. And in the States, we're really the second largest in the top echelon. Blue Bottle has you know, about 80, 90 stores and, and we're just over 50. Then there's just like a host of independents. And you know, we employed pre-COVID around 650 people. And when the impact of COVID started to come through, I was in New York and it was quite apparent on March 13th that the world was going to change in a very dramatic way. We were planning for it. Our board was quite proactive in saying that this is something that could be very, very damaging for our business and the economy and we need to plan for it. So when I was in New York on March 11th, we had a meeting where we'd worked on the four phases, you know, phase one being some, some small changes and some cost savings and then through to sort of phase four, which was some pretty draconian measures and you know, real heavy austerity, lots of job losses, lots of store closings, you know, complete change in business operations. And then as a consequence of the dramatic decline, our, our revenue dropped 90% week on week. We were doing just over, you know, around a million dollars US. And this was in February and February is a very cold month. And, and we normally get a 30% pickup when the weather improves because we have outdoor dining. So we were, we were doing really well and we were going to grow about you know, 50 to 60% year on year and we had been doing anywhere from 60 to 100%, noting that you know, we only opened our first store in, in mid-2013. And as I said, when I went full-time in mid-2016, we only had 12 locations. So it'd been a heavy growth period and we were actually slowing the unit count but we were going to focus more on same-store sales and the profitability of the total firm and some of the, the new areas we're investing in, digital, CPG, e-commerce, wholesale. 
But it was a ninety percent drop, so it was it was catastrophic. It was absolutely heartbreaking. You, we had to make redundant the majority of the staff. Those who remained, about a hundred, worked in the stores that we kept open purely for three reasons: first, for some sense of continuity of the brand; secondly, to give our locals some hope that we're going to be, you know, f- continue to fulfill our mission of being a locals genuine daily escape so they can escape from their apartment and then you know thirdly so we can continue to contribute to community initiatives like fuel for for our healthcare heroes in which we donated about 40,000 cups of coffee across five states and over 35 hospitals so it was heartbreaking in it and it still is you know we've we've now up to opening 20 stores but our sales volume is only about 23% of what it should be based on budget and, you know, maybe 25, 26%, or maybe, maybe about closer to 30% pre-COVID. So absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, we've been dealt with challenge after challenge because it's, it's not just the dramatic decline in demand. It's the start and stop of the way that governments have said you can operate like this. And then California said, no, you can't. And New York says you can open for dining at a limited capacity on July 6th. And then on July 2nd, they said indoor dining is banned indefinitely. And then we've had, you know, a couple of staff test positive for COVID and, and the challenges around that. And then obviously we had a Another unprecedented event being the tragic killing of George Floyd and how that acted as an, a nationwide catalyst for the Black Lives Matter sort of movement and a movement towards greater focus on systemic racial issues and racial equality. Certainly, obviously, most of the protesting were extremely peaceful and we're highly supportive or an ally of of equality and Black Lives Matters, but you know some of our stores were disrupted by some rioting, and that also acted, I think, as somewhat of a, a headwind to get some momentum to open. So it's it's extremely challenging, and uh, it's a day to day proposition. And yeah, it's it's hard to explain to people that you know it's trying to encapsulate it all because it's been so complicated. I've I've probably never dealt with anything as complicated in my life than than the last four months yeah yeah i think i think very few business people will ever see anything like this save for war which you know we hope will never happen yeah i mean it's hard to see where the future is going to be anything could change you know second waves etc what long-term changes do you think this might have the changes have been dramatic so as an example on on march 16th bluestone lane the stores that we kept open 14 of our 51 stores they all went mobile only exclusively. So we, we have not accepted a credit card payment or a cash payment since that day. The only way in which you can order is via a 100% mobile contactless experience. So you order directly from our app for pickup and you also order directly from our app for native delivery. We are on third-party delivery sites, but we've now moved it all within our app. So that was a transformative change and it led from our loyalty sort of program, you know, having about 50,000 registered participants to now over 100,000 in our loyalty program, which is pretty incredible. And the adoption of order ahead and contactless has been extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And we have very few customers or locals coming up and saying, you know, can I pay at the point of sale? Can I pay via credit card? Everyone has rallied around it because we focused and we made a very clear stance 
that health and safety of our team and our locals is the absolute priority. So well before some of the biggest chains out there, let's let's say the, the biggest one starting with S, they were still letting customers into the store in March. We drew a line in the stand and said from March 16th, no customer would be allowed in any of our stores and no one would be allowed in even supplies to protect the health of our team. And it's been really well adopted and we actually invested a substantial amount in the technology for our cafe experience, which really is being focused on service and human connection. It still is focused on human connection, but we have to reduce the amount of service from our team. And how that's been now enabled is purely through technology. So it's reservation only. So it enables us to manage the venue with with limited seating, uh, adhering to the six feet social distancing rules between tables, adhering to the contact tracing protocols. So you have to have a Bluestone Land app you download it, it connects to a reservation platform. When you arrive, you check in, you have, you're asked your health check questions. You're then greeted by the concierge. They're taken to your table. You scan a barcode on your phone. It automatically opens the app and then you order directly from the app and the food is delivered to you and payment and tip and service charges all through one sort of simple expedited frictionless experience. And it all goes through one loyalty program, which which we never offered pre-COVID. So technology to drive efficiencies, to manage risk, I don't think we'll ever recede. This will, without a doubt, be the way forward. And you're seeing what Starbucks are investing in with mobile only as well. Secondly, without a doubt, real estate changes across the entire spectrum, retail, real estate. I think all real estate offers through to retail dramatically changes. You're going to see such a bigger focus on amenity retail. It was already moving that way, but it's going to accelerate. Certainly areas in which they rely on tremendous you know commuter traffic and you know tremendous office occupancy are going to be more impacted negatively there's going to be a huge push towards work, work from home and suburban locations that's what we're focused on we only have one suburban location oh we have two actually one in the hamptons and one in los altos which is in the bay area of san francisco they're both doing exceptionally well that's where we'll be focused on and then you know i think that ultimately like we were dealing with a challenge pre-covid that the labor market was so incredibly tight. In New York City, the official unemployment rate was below 3%. So I think there was certainly a huge war for talent. There was a lot of competition. There'd been extraordinary economic conditions for a long time. And there was probably too much competition, too many stores, and there was just not enough people. And that obviously changes dramatically. So I think that we can focus on bringing in high quality talent, spending more on training and having far more productive staff that that we can reward and by using technology to bridge um, some of the more antiquated processes that we had people doing. And it's just a better way to do it given the focus on health and safety. And, And I think the consumer preferences have changed and they will not come back. You know, 60 days to learn a new habit. I think order ahead, I think mobile only is going to be well and truly the way that people think about getting a whole range of products and I and I do believe coffee will be one of those. So long-winded answer, but the world will never come back. My view is that consumer behavior will change forever, but, you know, there will always be parts of 
the hospitality chain that are heavily focused on service and human connection, fine dining, for example. But I think the rest will use technology to drive efficiencies because the cost structure is going to be so challenged. Mm. What would you say some of the biggest sort of leadership challenges that you've had to face? I think early on, my analytical brain, and, and obviously I love numbers, I love data. I was you know, a banker for 11 years in a few countries. I can look at things in a quite a quantitative lens, but from a qualitative side, like I'm a very caring person. I love being part of the team. I'm so thankful for people that have played their part in making Bluestone the brand it is. I think that one of the hardest things was my brain was saying, this is going to be really, really bad and you have to make dramatic changes here, not just tinker on the engines. You have to make fundamental wholesale changes and that means that a lot of people are going to be impacted. And I think my other side of my brain was like, this is just you know, all these people that, that have helped and tried and given their best. But ultimately, I had to make a decision that my obligation as CEO was to save the company. I have to have a company in which people can come back to. So we made a very aggressive decision to make so many roles, hundreds of roles, 500 roles redundant. And what we did was we were able to pay out entitlements, leave, sick leave, and we we're able to provide redundancy if we made the decision right now. There was certainly no guarantee for any redundancy if we didn't rip the Band-Aid off in a very aggressive way. And that's what I decided to do. So I think you know, having discussions with people that had worked with you for two years or five years that they suddenly don't really have a role in COVID was, was heartbreaking. When you're the founder, it's not just purely business. Clearly, it's like a, a member of your family. And a lot of the team members early on are teammates, are a part family. That's an extremely hard thing. I think managing the health and safety protocols, managing if someone in your team tests positive, you know, we had that. We had a staff member test positive at a couple of different stores and how you then have to quarantine. We took a very aggressive stance. Anyone who was exposed, that team member was put in quarantine for two weeks, fully paid. We had to bring in a whole new you know, set of staff. Those complexities are huge. And then obviously, you know, moving to 100% mobile and digital, all the comms piece and the education we had to provide with our locals, which, which was massive as well. And finally... We, pre-COVID, we were only 5% of our total sales was delivery. It was a very, very small part of the business. So we didn't really focus on it. Delivery became 50, over 50% 50 of the business within one month. So onboarding all the different platforms, having it all go through our one system, our Olo Rail system, there was a huge sprint there. The team did an exceptional job, but but you know it's it was complicated when you suddenly go from five percent to fifty, you know, in in a couple of week period. You know, it's going to provide a lot of challenges. What about your expansion plans? Is this sort of putting the brakes on any further expansion, at least for the foreseeable future? We cut all new store openings when COVID arrived. We we had to save cash in any way, shape, or form we could, and it all adds up and. My focus now is to continue to weather the storm. There's some of the locations we've opened that were extremely profitable and successful pre-COVID. We've, we've opened them up and to see how they've performed and they've performed actually um, in quite a challenged way. People are just not back 
to work yet and people are people have left the city. I think that that will change in September, October after Labor Day. But you know, until I get that time, I don't really have a set view on expansion with the exception of I do believe that suburbs are going to be very attractive. I'm working on a roadmap to focus on suburban locations that have linkage to the mass urban centers we're in. So parts of of New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, the outer LA through to anywhere from between San Diego and LA and LA between San Francisco. I think there's you know tremendous opportunity. But it, it just depends on how we weather it. And and like most retail, the biggest risk probably in their business right now that they can try and influence because I do think traffic is challenged. Like you need consumer confidence to feel good and that's linked to you know the health of society improving and the virus sort of abating is landlords and negotiating your fixed cost base and that was the huge push to try and get to a variable cost base to reduce the operating leverage and that is what I've I took on just myself with our general counsel and that is extremely complicated we have 50 discrete landlords all have different views on the relationship that you have, the contract you share. And if I'm able to move that to something that's sustainable and palatable for the long term, which most of, you know, the majority of the landlords are aligned that way. Some are not, which has certainly been frustrating. You know, we'll make it through and we should have a chance to relook at growth at some stage. But it's still a fight for survival. There's no way about it. I think we're only a quarter away through, unfortunately. You know, we're going to have to deal with fall and winter. And if you think about it right now, the only way to buy product in the markets that we operate in, California, New York, Massachusetts, and Jersey, it's curbside pickup or you dine outside. Now, what's going to happen in fall when it starts snowing? You know, I think there's some the real challenges that we're concerned about. And then what's going to happen to commuting? You know, people are just going to prefer to work from home rather than, you know, dealing with driving in the snow or dealing with trains because obviously they're going to restrict capacity on subway and on trains. So, some huge challenges to navigate and we're being extremely conservative and that's why it was so hard because you knew that you had to reduce your cost base by 80% and that meant that the biggest investment we make is in our people. It's over 35% of total revenue. So it was it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, you've got your technology for delivery and pick up, click and collect, etc. Any movement on e-commerce of say coffee for home and beans or Yeah, that that jumped dramatically. It's up period on period about 400%. But e-commerce is still small um, relative to retail. And I, I think it seems very alluring and it makes sense have coffee delivered to home and coffee's, you know, a decent size category on Amazon. But it is competitive and it's extremely price sensitive. And there's the cost of acquisition can be very, very high. So I there's not that many coffee brands out there that really do north of one to two million dollars in sales on e-com. There's a lot that do 500,000, but very few that do sort of one to two million. The growth has been strong. We will continue to invest into it and we're looking at opportunities there and partnerships. I would say for us, like I think capsules is something that we're really heavily focused on, especially in 
biodegradable format. We've been spending a lot of time and research understanding that market. That's something that I think that we could be moving into high quality and biodegradable and Nespresso and Keurig compatible. Nespresso is certainly the priority. I think what's going to be interesting about e-commerce is with coffee shops, the way delivery is working, you know, instead of buying coffee from Amazon or buying directly from the roastery, it might be much more efficient just to get coffee delivered from your local cafe. And I think avoiding that whole packaging shipping. So in, if you're ordering uh, avocado smash and a brekkie board or a chia pudding and an ice magic, you could just throw a bag of beans in there and they could grind them for you. It could be whole bean and it could be a lot more fresh and just a more efficient transaction than ordering online. So that's something that we're looking at is converting you know, a lot of our stores to really more distribution and maybe that'll cannibalize a bit of e-com. But I think a lot of brands are going to be looking at that because it, it could be cheaper for them, far cheaper than doing shipping on e-com. And then just on a personal level to wrap up here, this whole experience must have made you think differently as a human being and maybe impact on your own life and how you see the world. There are a lot of silver linings. The net result is without a doubt a tremendous negative and challenge for the world, but there are some silver linings. And my mum and my wife, both early on when I was looking at Bluestone Lane, thinking that my business baby was on its knees and could die, that they reinforced there are silver linings. You just got to look for them. And there have been tremendous ones. I think for myself, I spent 120 days away from the family last year and we live on the West Coast in Los Angeles and I was flying to New York every second week. I missed a lot of quality time. I really did. I have two young kids and one that's only 11 months old and he was born in August and what's been fantastic is the deep relationship that I've really accelerated with my kids by spending every day at home, playing with them, doing bed every night, you know, dinner, family dinner every night, not going out with anyone else. Really, you're only just socializing within your family construct. That I, I do think has been wonderful. I certainly reorientated around what my priorities are in life and what I want to achieve. And it's given me a great appreciation of also, like the challenges of being a single parent when I was away so much, and it's very demanding and exhausting. And my wife, you know, gave up the majority of her career to be stay at home and bring up our kids and sacrifices she's made. So, I think a huge part that we feel sad about is the ability to get home to Australia is restricted right now. You you can't fly to where we're from in Melbourne. You then have to do quarantine if you fly in other states for two weeks in a hotel and that's scary. That's scary when your parents and your family, you can't just get home easily. I think a lot of Australians feel that when they're overseas. It's given me also a great appreciation of like how I can be more productive in my role and how I can use technology to continue to maintain great relationships with the team, my direct reports. And it's made me think about how do you build that and continue to build that organizational culture virtually? And that is a really challenging one. You know, you can call town hall, get around in a room and you can feel talk and, you know, have a come together moment where everyone feels aligned and, and excited. But, you know, now you do it all virtually and digitally. How do you get the same resonance? And uh, that's given me, a, I've had to read a lot and reflect and solicit a lot of advice. And, you know, I think improving as a leader, 
but I've certainly been tested and, you know, I'm just trying to continue to learn and evolve with this new circumstance. But I'm positive that humanity will find a way. I'm positive that there's going to be huge benefits to the way people think about family and the prioritization. And I'm grateful from that perspective. It's given me a pause moment that, hey, I missed a lot of times away and maybe I didn't have to fly every second week. Maybe I could have just used technology to be more effective and been more efficient with my time. Thanks, Nick. It's really, really great insight into your business and also your thinking as a leader. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening. We hope you got as much out of this as we did. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear your thoughts at worldcoffeeportal slash fifthwave. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and in sound engineering by Chris Brister. The theme music is Cold Coffee, written by Gort McDermott, and interpreted by Matt Kent for The Coffee Music Project. Have a great week, and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated.